there is a library that exists at the nexus where all other universes collide. Inevitably, things wind up there by mistake. Books, artifacts, people. This is the place where things from all universes end up when they get lost. This is the Eternity Archives. everyone, and welcome to the Eternity Archives. My name is Ziva. My pronouns are she, her. Usually I play Linda, the human office lady, but this arc, Linda's going to be taking more of a backseat since she's going to be anchoring the campaign and thus guiding Zen and Rill through our playthrough of the 13th Age. So my fun fact for this week is um, I love Renaissance fairs an unholy amount, and I actually got engaged at one oh. in front of a unicorn. Like a real one? Uh, I mean, a Renaissance fair real one. <laughs> oh, okay. It was a heritage horse in a beautiful costume. That's pretty much as close as to a real one as you can get, really, so, I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you really can't do better than that, so. That's pretty good. Uh, hey, everyone, you may recognize the uh, beautiful sound of my glorious voice, but as some of you might know, I kind of go through different names, and I'm just trying them on, like, new pants, and I've decided I don't like Kite anymore, so we're gonna throw that out. We're gonna go with the username I've been using since I was, like, 12, uh, which is Bappy or Bap or any variation thereof, and shall be known as henceforth until I change my mind again. I play Real de Drakel, who is a little little baby tiefling who uh, is kind of sad, but you know, you kind of feel bad for them in like a good way, maybe? Uh, my fun fact about Renaissance fairs is for some reason, uh, all my friends love to regale this tale of the time we went to a Renaissance fair and I consumed like 3,000 <laughs> calories in 15 minutes. I'm trying to remember what I ate. I, I know there's fried mac and cheese balls. A Dutch egg, I think. Or a scotch egg. Yeah, scotch egg. And it was like fried salmon balls. Cheesecake on a stick? I think I did eventually get to a cheesecake on a stick. I did a Belgian waffle. And I also did three scoops of ice cream and a waffle cone. And one of my friends swears up and down that I also ate a turkey leg. I'm not sure how... Tr- how true that is because I don't like turkey but honestly I might have been feeling very adventurous that day uh, as you can tell by my list of food that I ate within like no exaggeration probably like 30 to 40 minutes like I ate all that like while walking around we didn't just sit down we just kept walking around in the summer heat and I just kept buying food and eating it and I, <laughs> I think I think my friends were worried I was about to die but obviously I didn't uh, I'm stronger for it maybe yeah I only witnessed the <laughs> aftermath so I cannot say with certainty what was concerned consumed but it was substantial yeah so there you go i like to eat at renaissance fairs that's because renaissance fair food is delicious it is delicious it's a very anachronistic and you know what i like to imagine medieval fantasy pieces people are eating just frozen cheesecakes and turkey legs and fried mac and cheese balls and and whatever that's the dream (laughs) yeah uh this is canon now for this campaign they absolutely have cheesecake on a stick excellent and i'll explain why we just have the power to do that later so I am Dorka. My pronouns are she, her. Don't worry, Bappy. This is also the username I've been using since I was 12. So excellent. Solidarity. <laughs> Actually, me too. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, as long as we've all known each other. Yeah, it's true. 
And I am playing Zenzora, aka Zen, who is a gigantic lizard lady. And my fun Renaissance Fair fact, I go to the Renaissance Fair at least once a year, except for this year because they're all closed, which is tragic. Not in Texas. Sorry, what? I said not in Texas. Oh, well. (laughs) Wait, really? That's upsetting. (laughs) That's an unfun fact. (laughs) Well, a few years ago, when I went to the Renaissance Fair, they were having a all-ladies sword fighting show and I went and saw that show and it was pretty much the coolest thing I'd ever seen and the next year I signed up for sword fighting lessons. It is like known that Dorka could kick all of our asses in real life but actually oh yeah also in character so we're, there's parallels here a lot of parallels. Well <laughs> I unfortunately can't afford to keep taking sword fighting lessons so I'm living vicariously through my character. That sounds about right. Say <laughs> so what is role playing for if not living vicariously through our characters? That is right. Okay, so let's go ahead then and jump into our game, this arc, which is, as I mentioned earlier, the 13th Age. So the 13th Age is, I think, is a really interesting system. I'll just go ahead and give a little bit of background, and then we'll dive into our discussion. The 13th Age is actually a relatively new system, so to speak. It was created in 2016 by Rob Hinesu and Jonathan Tweet, who were two former Wizards employees who worked on Dungeons & Dragons 3.0 and 4.0, respectively. Actually, not maybe respectively, but they both worked on it. It has quite a prestige um, and quite a history. Obviously, in addition to being created by two former Wizards employees, it was also nominated for an Emmy. It was debuted at Gen Con, and it, I believe, won some awards there. It is a D20 type game, so it's very similar to Dungeons and Dragons in some way. It was a, you know, it's an independent system, however. It debuted what it calls the um, Archmage Engine, which is basically just the rules and the world that come from the 13th Age book. It basically was written as sort of a story-heavy response to Dungeons & Dragons, especially 3rd and 4th edition, which both have a bit of a reputation for being very crunchy. It really tries to balance between that sort of crunchy and combat-heavy work and also role-playing. There's a really big emphasis in this system on making things as cool as possible, on building truly unique characters that inhabit like a very special place in the world. It's built for long-term play, so um, there's some things here on our podcast that aren't necessarily going to fully showcase the 13th Age, but you'll at least get a good feel for the flavor. It's also really big on making your own content, even including sharing content under the open game license, which I think is really cool. They really are like, share it. We don't care. Do stuff. Make your cool stuff and share it with your friends and (laughs) share it with the internet, which I think is really great. Before I had read anything about 13th Age, I'd only heard of it because you said you were going to be running it. I mentioned it to a friend of mine, and they told me that this game is basically just what the designers of Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition played before they went on to write that system. They told me this is kind of a warning, really. They were suggesting that 13th Age was just going to be 5th Edition with all of the D&D flavor rubbed off of it, but as I was reading through the book, I realized that that is totally wrong. Like, there's a lot in here that's familiar, but this is a completely different system than 5e. Yeah, I feel like as I was prepping for this, that there's actually a lot more learning that I had to do than I expected to. I was like, yeah, yeah, D20 combat, whatever. And I got in there and I was like, whoa, there's actually a lot of different stuff going on, both positive stuff and negative stuff, but we'll get to all of that. So one of the things that I think is particularly cool about 13th Age is the amount of emphasis on the rule of cool and the GM input. So on the whole, the world is based on something called the Dragon Empire, but it's very, very loosely fleshed out. And the book specifically recommends that you adjust as works for you. So they basically are like, here's the cities. 
everything in between the cities is more or less fair game. Do whatever you want. And so the universe has a lot of flex in order for the players and the GM to work together to mold the universe into something really cool that works for basically the story they want to tell about their heroes. And because of this flexibility, there's a lot of places in the book, even as they're outlining things like combat rules, which normally we think of as really strict, that they say, you know, go ahead and flex this, go ahead and make executive decisions that allow for coolness. So if normally you would cast a fireball spell, but it's at a point in the battle where it'd be super cool if like, you know, it was actually just like a huge flame grenade, go for it. There's a lot of emphasis on dramatic effect and player consequences and also cool RP opportunities. So there's lots of times where they're like, if you don't want to do a dice roll, just throw it out and have your players role play it instead, which I think is is really awesome. Even in flexible systems like Powered by the Apocalypse, there's a lot of cases where still you end up rolling for things instead of having RP opportunities. And of course, you're encouraged to create and share your own content, which as the GM for this arc, I think is really cool, which is why I can just declare cheesecake on a stick is a thing because I think it's fun and I think it's cool on my players and I all like it. So now (laughs) it's a thing. Yay. It is interesting to compare and contrast and and knowing that these guys were at Wizards of the Coast and did do Dungeon Dragon stuff to see like the similarities. And at least for me, I don't know if this is a good or bad thing yet because, you know, we haven't played yet. But I think it's like technical, but not at the same time. You you all will hear more about that once we get into combat. But there's like qualifiers like close by or far away or whatever, which sound like really vague, but they like have actual like hard mechanics mechanics to it that will like adjust your modifiers. And so it's kind of interesting to sort of think about how what Z was saying, it's like rule of cool and storytelling and stuff like that. And there's definitely an emphasis on that. And, And it's interesting to see how they kind of balance the crunchy mechanical aspect on top of like the really flavorful story aspects as well. I don't know if that was just like just me that maybe has issue with that. Or not issue, but like has trouble reconciling those two things. But I'm interested to see what it'll be like when we actually play. Yeah, and I even noticed a few places in the book where there was a note that was like, yeah, when we were designing this system, the designers couldn't agree on how exactly to do this. So here are a couple of options and do what you want with it. So I think it'll be really uh, interesting to see how this all plays in practice. Yeah, absolutely. Look, at that point, I'm just going to make my own game, you guys. Come on now. (laughs) (laughs) If I have to choose my own rules, that's cheating. So um, some of the the universe flavor that is relatively consistent is something called the icon system, which I think is actually very cool and is one of the reasons that the system was recommended uh, to me. My partner uh, has read through this book but never played it and was like, these icons are really, really cool and really fun to play with. And so I was really excited to jump in. So there's basically 13 really powerful NPCs that shape the world. Some of them are good. Some of them are evil. They're sort of all across that standard like alignment chart of like true lawful good and, you know, that I don't I don't really take a ton of stock in that but the icons fall across the chart yeah I was gonna list them but honestly there's too many of them but what's really important is that in addition to shaping the world and shaping the characters the players actually have like a point-based relationship that range from strongly positive to strongly negative with the various icons those relationships can change over time when you start you allocate those points into positive neutral or negative relationships based on you know how many points your character gets to meet out and then over time as you level up, you can add other relationships, you can add points, you can take away points. But then those points are used in the wider universe to figure out how those players are going to engage with the different factions and with the different icons and with different races and environments. 
I really loved the icons as a world building tool. Like the first chapter of the rule book is 13 pages. It's just one page for each icon. And it really just does a ton to set the tone and get my creative juices flowing and get excited about playing the game. You're supposed to connect your character to one or more of these figures, which really establishes you as special right off the bat and opens up so many hooks for role playing. And with the emphasis in the book that the 13th age setting is only really half finished by design, there are so many ways you can plan around these powerful figures casting their shadows over the game. And it seems like if you wanted to make your own icons, you could. Like, they don't have stat blocks, they don't have any sort of necessary balance. You can just come up with your own cool, powerful icons. Yeah, they actually even say on like the publisher page, the official page where you can like order this book, that there are icons that they like mention offhand in the book. And they're like, hey, uh, if you want to like turn that into your icon, talk with your GM, make it happen, which I think is just like really in the spirit of the system. Yeah, like what Dorcas said, I, I do like how they had those kind of concise blurbs of about the icons, because I will be the first to admit, I am very bad at reading large blocks of text. So kind of like you listeners who don't know how how this game works, you can live vicariously through me because I only kind of know how this game works. You you would imagine I would read the entire book, but nope, I can't because I just zone out after 10 <laughs> sentences. So, but the icon stuff, I did read through because it was, it was very easy to read and I very much enjoyed that. And yeah, just kind of echoing that having those connections to the world is very cool, interesting, just because it's like, well, you know, we'll get more into this later as we talk about our characters and the choices we made. But like, there are certain icons that I may not have normally considered for rail that I was like actually hmm now that you've put this little idea nugget in my brain it has flourished into a big fried chicken in my head that metaphor didn't work out quite what I wanted it to be but you you know what I mean are you hungry Bappy I did eat a Big Mac just now um you might have heard me uh oh you know what I'm just I'm just reliving the renaissance fair I'm just gonna eat my fries One of the things just related to this discussion that is definitely a check in the cons of the system. There's a lot of really great resources available to help you navigate setting up your characters and navigate combat and such. But it is kind of a dense book to just like sit down and read because the text is very flavorful and they provide a lot of examples. And a lot of those are examples from their own campaigns. So it's not necessarily like, you know, Susie, the starting elf goes through these things. It's like they'll pull up these like really like flavorful and interesting examples, but they're hard to follow from chunk to chunk. It's kind of ironic isn't it? Yeah, it is kind of ironic. Because it's such like a dense book, it's a little hard to sit down and just like read and be like, oh, I get it. This is going to be a bit of a challenge for me to anchor just because none of us have played this system before. And so bear with us listeners. (laughs) Don't worry, they won't hear us flipping through the manuals. Yeah. Hour long blocks of silence as we figure (laughs) out what we're supposed to do. Uh, Yeah, so this book is like beautiful, and it's really cool to read through. And it's like, it sparks a lot of imagination. But in terms of the mechanics, it's a little challenging, because you'll read through like a whole paragraph to get to like, roll for initiative, or the way that the chapters are in order doesn't make a ton of sense. Oh, absolutely not. (laughs) 
Yeah, so you'll be like, okay, I read about races, uh, and then I read about like world building, and then I read about classes, and then I read about character creation, and then character creation is like a bunch of paragraphs and a bunch of examples instead of like bullets of like, here's what you need to do. So that's uh, like a personal preference. I don't like organization that way so much, but just keep that in mind if that's like the kind of thing you like. If you just want to like sit down and like immerse yourself and just like explore what a system has to offer, it's a great book for that. For me, at least, I don't think I've ever read a source book front to back because I just start zoning out and I will fall asleep like 10 <laughs> pages in. And so at least for me, like, you know, for D&D, D&D is great because of D&D Beyond where it's like you have these web pages that have like concise information you can kind of, you know, either control F or, you know, organize very well. Whereas, you know, unfortunately, pretty much any other game does not have that. So for very crunchy kind of D&D type games that aren't like powered by the apocalypse or even like fate, which, which are both books while I have not read front to cover. I have skimmed through and read most of it, uh, albeit out of order, but <laughs> I at least have like a pretty good working knowledge of it. Whereas 13th Age, I was just like, okay, let me see how to make my character. And then I just like read paragraph chunks, like the first sentence of every paragraph. And then I got distracted for three hours doing something else. So, um, <laughs> so you'll know how your class works and nothing else. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Like I know how my class works and I know how combat works and then I know a little bit of everything um but just a hot tip for the game designers out there when you write your manual please make it like a TLDR section that has like concise information on how your mechanics work and then you can like link to the more in-depth parts of your book because uh, otherwise people like me may not be able to get through it even though we think it's really cool and we want to play but you know uh, paying attention for long periods of time sure is a rough rough life boys and girls and <laughs> anyone else <laughs> The rule book in the chapter on character rules, it does have a character creation checklist, but it's not a very good or informative checklist. It did not help me very much. It's just paragraphs. This is definitely a game that feels like it was really meant to be handed down. And I think but it's my impression that most of the player base is like people that the designers like played with at Gen Con and then like they spread out and taught their friends how to play. And we're not one of those people. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's been a little bit of an uphill battle. I definitely would like all game designers, if you're not doing like a what's so cool about outer space style that's like eight pages, please make a bullet or a flowchart or a checklist <laughs> or a website or something. <laughs> it's both important for accessibility because it lets people who are maybe not neurotypical or um, in the broader term of accessibility, people who just like aren't super familiar with RPGs or aren't super familiar with your system play. But also it just makes life a little bit nicer. If Shadowrun can do it, you can do it. Thanks, Shadowrun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just makes it easier to pick up and play. Yeah, definitely. Because like you all were asking me questions like, which feats do I pick? Is it this or is it this or is it? And I like had to like pull out the physical book and like flip through it furiously <laughs> to find the part that I needed. So yeah, this is going to be a bit of a scramble. But I promise uh, I've at least got an interesting little campaign to play. So, so we should be good. <laughs> Dorka will make it sound amazing, <laughs> but yeah. know that there was a lot of struggle on our part, <laughs> and also a lot she will have to edit. <laughs> yes, definitely. So thanks in advance, slash sorry in advance. Yeah, just a little side note, like how this book slash game kind of seems like it was meant to sort of be like handed down and like passed around to friends. Uh, I'm sure some people have seen tweets maybe about not so great things. Some very prominent TTRBG folks have said. And so like, even though 13th Age is definitely a very super cool idea, it does seem kind of like a little bit of a boys club type game, mm -hmm. which, you know, just, just a note going in, I suppose, because like a lot of like 
like indie TTRPGs seem very like more open-minded, socially present. <laughs> I don't know what, what phrase you would say exactly, but just something to keep in mind, I guess, is the uh, help me out here. What am I trying to say? <laughs> don't be sexist about who RPGs belong to. They yeah. belong to everyone. Yeah. And every time you say <laughs> that RPGs are mostly for boys or you make it like a boys club, I want to go grab my non-cis male friends and get our hands all over it. <laughs> Just get it. my my grubby femme and non-binary and trans men friends. And, yeah, lick it. It's mine Just now. Lick it. <laughs> So don't be a jerk about that. Pretty, pretty Let much. everyone have what they want. And don't build a system that requires people to hand it down. Which, again, I don't mean to like shit on this system. This system's actually very cool. <laughs> I just have problems with how it's organized because it feels like the rules are mostly supposed to be shared between people. And just based on like how this game kicked off, I strongly suspect that it is kind of a boys club. And the designers have said some things that I don't agree with about RPGs not really appealing to women, which... Two thirds of us are women on this podcast, <laughs> so don't say that. That's wrong. Yeah, I mostly just wanted to say this as a side note that there is maybe some controversy about the people who have written this book, and just wanted to make you guys aware before you kind of dip your toes into it, or you could just live vicariously through us uh, playing Thirteenth Age. And yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I feel like almost all mainstream systems have someone who opens their mouth and inserts their foot squarely <laughs> right in there and ruins everything for the rest of us. Yeah. yeah, it's usually about girls. Sometimes it's about POC. Don't do either of those. Knock it off. Let's <laughs> just not be racist or sexist. <laughs> yeah, it's not that hard. Okay, so like circling it back around about things I actually like about this system and that I think are cool <laughs> and worth talking about. That is a really important note, but I do want to like circle back around to some cool stuff. One of the things about the system that I think is actually like really, really great, and I wish every system did this, is the one unique thing, which is basically the idea that every single player character should have some kind of special feature that separates your character from all the other heroes and makes your character distinct and powerful and interesting in the world. It's player invented. The GM has to approve it, but it, otherwise it can be basically anything. The reason that the GM has to approve it is that it's not really for utility. It's more for flavor or role-playing so if you're like my one special thing is i'm the strongest woman in the universe your gm might not allow that if you're going to use it to like punch every boss into a pulp <laughs> but your gm might use it if like it's relevant because you're the strongest woman in the world at a traveling circus or something like that something that's like more fun and more of a flavor and not just like my one unique thing is i have a gun um you can't do that <laughs> Okay, well, that sounds fucking fantastic. I'm going to change my one unique thing now. <laughs> you can have a gun as long as you don't use it. It works exactly the same as like a bow and arrow. <laughs> But yeah, the examples in the book basically range from I'm the best in the world at swords to like, I'm the last survivor of a dead planet from outer space or that arrived here as a baby. The book encourages you to just go fucking wild. Like, be that super special neon OC that you made as a teenager. No, actually, be more than that. You don't need to draw the line at eyes that change colors with your emotions. You can be the long last daughter of one of these icons raised by the forces of evil to fight against him. You can just be as anime as you want. The more wild and out there your concept is, the more stories you can tell with it. So really just don't be afraid of being too unique or don't don't be embarrassed by your one unique thing. Just go wild. Yeah, it's like exactly the like teenage girl book 
thing that you wanted to be. It's like, you are special. You really (laughs) are the long lost daughter of the unicorn princess who can turn into a unicorn anytime you want. It's like all like that. It's amazing, which is just like incredibly fun to play with. Yeah. uh, Actually, can I be space Naruto with a gun? (laughs) As long as you use it for flavor, then absolutely you can be space Naruto with a gun. I actually don't know too much about how Naruto ended, but I think space Naruto might be redundant because I know there were some ninjas from the moon. What? Excuse me? You're asking the wrong people. I, I, I think there was a moon fight, but I might have hallucinated some tweets and or Tumblr posts regarding that. Anyway, my, I guess my point is uh, kind of to add what Totorka said, you know, just make yourself indulgent anime OC. Be space Naruto with a gun or whatever. I don't I don't fucking know, man. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's pretty great. Now I'm thinking about Naruto. I shouldn't have had wine before we started recording. Like the last like Naruto thing I remember is when I borrowed your DVDs of the Naruto anime. Oh yeah, with the I- shitty Chinese bootlegs. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I watched it with the subtitles on, and they kept calling that, like, weird pervert guy the Lechery Fairy, (laughs) which is amazing, and uh, also canon to this universe. He's never going to come up again, the Lechery Fairy, but he's totally real. The 14th icon. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So we've talked about a lot of the stuff that, like, flavors the universe, and a lot of the stuff about this universe that's, like, really flexible and allows you to do a lot of really cool shit, but let's get into a little bit of, like, the rules and like the crunchiness because it's a d20 system it's really similar to D in a lot of ways you use your you know normal array of dice from your d40 or d20 or the fancy d100 fucker which i don't ever use but it's really cool to look at i might have a problem with dice <laughs> it uses the ability score stats that you're really familiar with so strength constitution dexterity intelligence wisdom and charisma those are all relatively self-explanatory but if you're not familiar with them go back and listen to our first arc that should be really helpful. Those have similar meanings in terms of what they actually do. So like trying to lift a really heavy thing is going to use strength. Constitution is going to play into your uh, hit points. And then they're generated similarly. So you can do um, 46, drop the lowest. You can do point by, or you can do a standard spread. There's like a really nice table in the book of what a standard spread looks like. We did 46, drop the lowest, because that tends to provide some randomness, but it's not too mean. (laughs) One of the things about this that I think is actually a huge improvement over D&D, and I wish that this was more common as well, is that rather than having skill points or having proficiencies, you have skills that are associated with your background. So backgrounds are created by players or chosen out of the book that both portray your character's past and your character's role-playing flavor, but they also provide like a basis for what skills you would know. So for example, if you, I don't know why I'm just going to talk about circuses today. (laughs) If you were like an acrobat and you grew up in the circus, then it totally makes sense that you'd be like, I come into the room and I do a big tumble because I'm an acrobat and that's what I do. Or if you are a rogue who used to be an assassin and you decided that that was like past you and now you're just going to steal stuff instead of killing people, it makes sense that you'd be really good at sneaking because as an assassin, that's an important skill. So you can have multiple backgrounds and then you invest points into each, but typically you start with just one background. Then to make a skill check, it's not actually as complicated as it sounds. You need to justify why you have that skill, but then you get d20 plus the points in your background plus your ability modifier plus your level. So there's like a little bit of GM discretion and player discretion there, but it allows for a lot of really cool role-playing opportunities. So for another example, you could have a fighter and maybe that fighter used to be like a pirate. And so it makes sense then that they would be good at athletic checks because they used to climb the rigging all the time and hoist the anchors and other stuff that requires quite a bit of physical strength. 
Backgrounds were one of my favorite additions that 5th edition made to Dungeons and Dragons. It's just like a really solid roleplay hook to add to your character and make their backstory sort of determine what they're good at. So I haven't really decided yet if I like the 13th Age way better or less. Because like on the one hand, 13th Age gives you the chance to be really flexible with your backgrounds. You can choose more than one. You can say like, oh, I did this job for a while, but now I do this. And so I have some skills from both. Instead of Dungeons and Dragons, where the backgrounds just give you a couple of extra proficiencies. But the upside to Dungeons and Dragons having those pre-written specific backgrounds is that they do give you like a couple of extra bonus abilities from them, which can be situationally neat and flavorful. So I guess really it's a question of flexibility versus solid rules. And we'll just see how that plays out as we go. Yeah, I was actually about to say, because my opinion changed in the span of you talking, because <laughs> I was to be like, I actually kind of like the D&D 5e because I like a little bit of structure because it's kind of like if you give me a sandbox, I'm just going to sit in my corner because I'm afraid of the unknown. So I like a little bit of structure. But now that you say that with the backgrounds, they can be kind of limiting. Once again, if you compare 5e to 13th Age, as I've mentioned, 5e was a little bit hard to like kind of like fit real into that world, whereas 13th Age, because there was more options and whatnot with the background, like I could kind of like, you know, because there's not like a failed uh, academic dropout who has like half a biology degree as a background <laughs> in D&D but I like I can use that because I can just make it up yeah basically if you like more structure you'll probably like 5e's background system a bit more if you like to just kind of do what you want and you have a very clear idea of what you want that wouldn't fit in that system then probably like 13th age the background system for that is better for what you want to do I do like how instead of just having a list of skills that you use occasionally you basically just get to to make the argument to your GM that I should get a bonus to doing this action because of my history. Yeah, like, that is one thing I think I'm liking less and less about D&D, kind of, the more I play other games and listen to people play D&D, is that, like, it kind of drives me crazy when, like, you go into a room or something, or you're trying to investigate whatever, and then, you know, people are just like, well, can I roll a survival check? Can I roll an insight or whatever? And it's just like, well, okay, like, your character, would they be able to read like someone else's tics or facial expressions or like would they have very strong empathy to read another person it's just like everyone in the D&D universe which I guess is like kind of the point because you're supposed to be special or whatever like has these base abilities or like checks or skills or whatever and it's like but okay does that make sense <laughs> like you know you, you can be a plate wearer and have you know negative whatever to stealth but it's not going to be like actually enough to deter you from like stealthing unless it's like a very, very difficult stealth check that's like 15 or whatever, you know? So it's like, even though you're a paladin, maybe you're like a dragonborn paladin wearing like basic plate mail, you like still have the ability to stealth, even if that makes like literally no sense. And you like don't have to like really roleplay for it depending on the game. Like you just roll the dice and you do it. And like that kind of like drives me crazy because it's like, but why? Yeah. why? How can you do that? <laughs> In a game like this, if you were clonking around a plate mail and you were like, I'm going to sneak up on this creature with super enhanced hearing, as a GM, I could absolutely just make the choice and just say no. Yeah, I'd be like, bitch, I think not. <laughs> or you try to do it and you go clunk, 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 and the monster hears you and it eats you. You know, there's a lot of opportunity to roleplay there. But if you said, you know, like, I used to work as, you know, a servant for a really picky lord who hated noise, so I'd have to carry all these plates around and be like as silent as possible, I might be like, well, actually, that makes sense. 
And even like Monster of the Week, where there aren't as many skills and it does get a little more flexible, there were times when we were playing that where we were like, shit, I don't know what we would roll in this situation. And I think just doing away with skills entirely is a novel way to get around that. And I'm definitely excited to see how that plays out. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. Another thing I think is really nice about the backgrounds is it usually takes class into account. So like when you create your class for your character, there's a section of like skills that they recommend. The only one I can remember at the moment is that, for example, your sorcerer could be a disgruntled librarian (laughs) who finally like read all the books and was like, fuck you guys, I'm going home and then like learns like horrible magic skills. But you don't have to create it only based on your class. You could really do whatever background you wanted. But there's some sense, of course, in being good at skills that then transfer to your class. Yeah, I will say off the bat, there might have been a little min-maxing on my part. Because, for instance, for like my class stat increases, I think it was charisma and constitution. And I think from a roleplay standpoint, I was like, oh, well, constitution makes sense because they were a college student and they've had like all-nighters and stuff like that. But then I was like, okay, but we're low-level and I don't know if that like plus two to charisma will like help out my damage. So I might have picked charisma instead. So since I've mentioned classes a little bit, let's go ahead and talk about class and also race. It's a relatively standard like D&D type system, but in response to some of the earlier editions of D&D where if you chose specific races, you couldn't be specific classes, 13th Age opens it up and says any race and any class can go together. The built-in races are humans, dwarves, elves, gnomes, half-elves, half-orcs, and halflings. Some of them have subtypes, so for example, you can have wood elves or high elves or dark elves. And then there's also some non-standard built-in races like Dragonspawn, Forgeborn, which is like almost like a like robot, um, Tiefling, and Holy One. A Holy One's like an angel. And then, of course, Dragonspawn are dragon people, and Tieflings are probably familiar at this point if you've been listening to our podcast, since Real is one of them. Hi! <laughs> so there are tons more in the 13th Age expansions, which we won't be using for this game, but there are quite a few of them. And of course, as with everything in this game, feel free to add or adapt characters as you want. So you could totally be like, uh, I'm a mountain elf, and that means I get these specific tweaks on an elf. That's totally fine. That's like very welcome in the game. There's also, as part of that, a racial power that can be used once per battle. So for example, high elves have the ability to teleport, but they can only use that once per battle. So you can't, you know, nightcrawler around everywhere and bamf here and bamf there. You also then get a racial bonus, which is just a plus two to one of your abilities. So for example, dwarves are super hardy, so they get a plus two to constitution. In the book, they talk a lot about which classes are beginner-friendly and which classes are more complex, which I really appreciate. But there's a wide range of what you can do. It's, again, typical sort of D&D stuff. So you can play a barbarian, a bard, a cleric, a fighter, a paladin, a ranger, a rogue, a sorcerer, or a wizard. Sorcerer and wizard are similar sounding, but one of them is more disciplined. Like a wizard is more like a scholar and a sorcerer is more like a force of nature type. But other than that, they're relatively distinct classes. And you can sort of, as usual, add ones that you want, take ones away. You can adapt and choose if there's something you want that's kind of in between classes. You can go with that. It's adaptable as kind of everything in the system is. Specifically for like Sorcerer and Wizard, it is kind of similar to how D&D works. Just because the way I think about it is, you know, Wizards, you had to like study and like learn. And Sorcerers were basically like magical trust fund babies. Um, (laughs) They didn't do shit to get their skills and be good at what they do. They are anime characters. Like they were just born magical and, you know, you know what? Eat the rich. Eat the magic rich. (laughs) Fuck Sorcerers, even though I really like to play them. 
So what I really liked about this system was there were only bonuses, no penalties. Like you get a bonus from your race and you get a bonus from your class. And that means you can be pretty flexible. In Dungeons and Dragons, even though races no longer limit class selection, it can still kind of suck if you want to like play a wizard, but you also want to play a race that gives you a penalty to intelligence. And I know Wizards of the Coast is coming up with some stuff to work around this, but in 13th Age, you don't have to. You can just play that half-orc wizard and you get an intelligence bonus just by being a wizard. Yeah. And I think the other important thing to note there is that you can't stack the bonuses, which is why every race and every class gives you a choice between two. So like if you get a strength bonus from your race, you can't also get a strength bonus from your class and be like this super powered 22 strength juggernaut at level one. But you can get that strength bonus from your race and a constitution bonus from your class, for example, and just be a solidly well-rounded fighter. I also think that a lot of the language about race in this book is improved over D&D. I still think the concept of like a lot of the ways that we talk about race when we talk about role playing are still kind of fucked up. But in this, it feels very flavorful and it feels very universe specific and it feels a lot less gross than the way that D&D does it. I might have, you know, missed some specific examples, but on the whole, they spend a lot of time being like, how were halflings created? Nobody knows. Here's some stories halflings tell about it instead of like halflings are and then like describe a bunch of real world racial stereotypes. (laughs) So I really appreciate that too. It feels very in-universe flavorful and it doesn't feel quite as essentialist as sometimes Dungeons and Dragons can be. I mean, obviously like there's bonuses, like orcs tend to be bigger and dwarves tend to be hardier, but there's still even some flexibility in there. You could absolutely play like a scrawny dwarf who needs to like take a nap after a battle. Uh, Just a quick thing, because Dorka mentioned it. I know that people have made, like, class modifier modules for, like, 5th edition, where it's, like, instead of the bonuses coming from race, it comes from class. And there's a guy, I believe his Twitter handle is, let me see here, it's Gabe James Games. He wrote a thing that's on itch, if you want to check that out. Just a quick plug, because it's pretty cool to get bonuses from class instead of race. And you get to help an indie dev, you know? So go check that out if that piques your interest. We'll put a link in the notes. Yeah, absolutely. Not to like totally get off topic, but I love the indie dev scene for D&D. And it's one of the reasons that I'm not willing to totally write D&D off, even though I don't love wizards. And there's some definite things about D&D that I'm not a huge fan of, especially in terms of like some of the stuff we've talked about, like racial descriptors and just Wizards of the Coast is like a company. But like the combat wheelchair and stuff like that is amazing. The indie scene for D&D is incredible. And there's so much hard work being done to improve that system from indies. So good job, guys. Yeah, totally. So circle back to 13th age. I'm going to stay on topic this time. Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about combat and the flow. So the good news for all of us is that combat does follow the basic flow and structure of Dungeons and Dragons. So like you still get a crit when you have a natural 20. You still roll initiative and your initiative is d20 plus 1 plus dex. That makes sense. And your attack is a d20 plus an ability bonus plus level. That makes sense. But things like break down from there a little bit. So, you know, you have, for example, defense is now multiple pieces. It's not just your armor class. You have your armor class, which protects you from weapon attacks, but you also have physical defense, which protects you from other physical attacks like poison or fireballs or big rocks falling from the ceiling. And then you have mental defense, which protects you from mental attacks like mind and snaring and being charmed. And people calling me names. Yeah, people calling you names, exactly. 
And those are all generated from the middle value of three relevant stats. So for example, um, physical defense is generated from the middle value of your strength, constitution, and dex bonuses. So there's that. Defense is sort of a three-pronged thing, which makes sense for role-playing, but it's a little more complicated to like keep track of on your sheet. And then each turn, you get multiple types of actions. So it's not just like a standard action and a bonus action. You can do standard actions, which are like things like attacks. You can do a move action, which is obviously moving in the space. And then you can do a quick action, which is usually things like drinking. Well, actually, I don't know that for sure. Don't ask me what a quick action is. I think it's like a bonus action. (laughs) Yeah, it's basically like a bonus action. And then you can also do any free actions. So there's a lot of actions you can do in one turn. And then you can also ready future actions as a standard action after your turn ends. So in your regular turn, you get standard, move, quick, and free. And then after your turn, you can do ready, which is basically, I'm going to do this attack when this thing triggers it. So for example, I'm going to dodge when someone tries to hit me. And then that basically, when you do ready and your condition gets triggered, it changes your initiative. So for example, if you say, I'm going to dodge when someone tries to hit me and you have initiative 15, when a goblin with initiative 13 swings at you and you dodge, your initiative then changes to 13. And if it doesn't trigger at all, so for example, I'm going to roll when someone hits me and no one hits you, then you have to sort of throw it out and re-prepare it next time. So the moral of the story is there's a lot you can do in one turn of 13th age, which is good, but it is also a lot more complicated to keep track of. There's also mechanisms for things like ongoing effects. So like a save against poison damage you do at the end of your turn, you always do saves at the end. So you can do things like heal during your turn and then save. So because saves go at the end of your turn, that does mean that you need to play on like you're going to have that effect during your turn, as opposed to like, I'm going to roll for my poison save right at the beginning. Hooray, I'm safe from poison. So now I don't have to use that potion. So it has mechanisms for things like death saves, long versus short rest, unconsciousness, status effects, um, saves, resistance, leveling up through milestone XP, etc. Um, that's all relatively normal stuff. So I'm not going to go over it in a ton of detail. Um, I recommend again, listening to our first arc if you're curious about those mechanics and of course some of them will come up during the gameplay so i think this is something i'm really gonna have to see in action my first instinct was that having all of those different defenses for different types of attacks is very cool but then my second instinct was that that's more numbers we have to keep track of and more that we kind of have to know but then i thought about it again and thought that maybe this is you know this is a good replacement to difficulty checks on spells which we established in chapter one that i can never remember how to figure out so we'll see how <laughs> (laughs) that goes. Other than that, the rules are pretty familiar. But one thing I did notice is that a lot of attacks do damage even if you miss, even if it's just like a little bit, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, I think that's kind of in replacement of 5e where it's like, you know, even if someone saves against a spell cast, they still take like half damage. Uh, I didn't notice anything about the opponent making spell saves. It all seemed to be on behalf of the attacker. So like the opposite or inverse or whatever that. I'm going to mine some salt from my salt mine here uh, (laughs) because (laughs) as I mentioned earlier, it was like interesting how they seem to try to balance the uh, more abstract distance, but then like also add mechanics to it. And a lot of maybe my beef slash reluctance with this in regards to turn. I feel like I'm shitting on the system a lot. I don't mean to. I like it looks very cool, and I'm sure I'll have fun when we play. It's just things like, for instance, I actually do like this where it doesn't seem like there's spell slots, so you have prepared spells, but then some of the spells are quote unquote at will. Which means you can use it as much as you want. It kind of seems like a cantrip, I guess. And then there's others which are 
Recharge. And based on what I've read, it seems Recharge, you can only use it once per battle. Because it says you have to roll a dice after you recharge a spell after battle. And if you roll the target number, which it has like a base number, or you can lower it by specking into certain feats, it seems that if you roll that number, you can use it again in another battle that day before you have a rest. But otherwise, it seems like, do I just get to use that spell the one time in battle? Like, I don't have any spell slots, right? Yeah, no, there's no spell slots, which is cool. And I think if that's how D&D worked, and that's like what we were used to, I think it probably would make a ton of sense. Right. Since it's not, I have to like wrap my head around it a little bit in terms of how it actually works in play. But I really like not having spell slots because it really frustrates me in D&D when you're like, I'm an all-powerful sorcerer. Oops, I casted that three times today. I'm done. Well, it's like, you know, it's like spoons, you know, but instead of spoons, you you use spell slots. So it's like, instead of (laughs) I don't have spoons for that today, you just say I don't have spell slots. (laughs) I'm gonna start saying that. As someone who doesn't play a lot of heavy magic classes, I guess you can take my opinion with a grain of salt, but I do like that, you know, sometimes your spells have to recharge. I like the recharging spells instead of the spell slots. Because it just makes sense to me that, like, different spells would have different, I guess, magical costs instead of all of these spells of this level taking up an equal amount of magic, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's also this cool idea called ritual spells, which is that you can cast a lot of spells in an alternative way by finding the materials they need and taking a significantly longer amount of time to prepare it. So it's possible, for example, that a sorcerer who is out of that recharge and can't just like cast that spell normally could do it as a ritual instead. So they're drawing on like the strength of magical objects and the strength of like the casting to be able to do that spell anyway, which is a really cool idea. I'm not sure it's actually going to like come into play. Well, there's something similar to that in 5e. That's true. Yeah. Oh, okay, so this is this is the part that annoys me with 13th Age. Once again, this is just from me reading it, not with me playing it. Maybe I'll think it's fine. And it's not necessarily because I'm used to D&D or whatever. It's that parts of this system seem like, how do I say this? It bothers me when games try to make stats and the crunchy bits just like overly complicated. So for instance, it's like one of the stat modifiers or whatever is like you pick out of like constitution, wisdom, intelligence, or whatever, you pick the middle of those three stats. And like, I can understand that because it's like, oh, well, you know, if you have someone who is really good in one stat or but really bad in this other stat, it's not like dependent on the class. So you don't like fuck someone over just because they're a wizard versus like a fighter or whatever, you know? And so I can understand that, but I also kind of hate it because it's just like, <laughs> it just seems complicated for no reason to be like, yeah, just pick the, the middle number. And it's like, okay, but why? Why is it the middle number? Why isn't it like pick the highest or pick the lowest? Why? is it the middle number <laughs> and it's kind of like that with some of the way these attack rolls work yeah where it's like your attack roll is your charisma modifier plus your level and then it's versus you know either their physical defense metal mental defense or whatever once again i can understand why they put in physical defense and mental defense and that's cool and i can appreciate it but i don't know if i like that <laughs> Like, I just feel like instead of putting all these modifiers, they could have just picked like some kind of flat number to do it instead of being like, yeah, add this and this and this. And it's just like, I don't 
know how I feel about it. Right now, I feel a little salty about it. <laughs> we'll see if, if I feel that way at the end of this. I feel like a lot of these are supposed to put the emphasis on your character. So a lot of them are like personalized and scale up as you get more powerful. But it does sometimes feel a little random. I feel like this isn't a super friendly system for people who have not played an RPG before. I would say absolutely not. If someone taught me, if this was a case where someone invited me to come play 13th Age and I didn't really know 13th Age and they were like, it's cool, we'll walk you through it. We'll do a session zero where we do like baby's first campaign. I could probably do it. But yeah, I definitely agree that this is not like the friendliest beginner system. If you babysit me, I'll, I'll try anything. Uh, <laughs> when you throw me into paragraphs of math and things I'm not used to, uh, I might cry. <laughs> But it's fine, I think. Like, we'll, we'll link some resources. And honestly, these yeah. resources are what super helped me was there's a website that has like, you know, like the spell cards you can buy in DD, basically like that. And then those are really nice because it is like concise chunks of what you need to look at in a separated space. So it doesn't like blend in with all the other words. And it even has like some descriptive information because I have the spell called resist energy. And it's like until the end of the battle, the target gains resist damage 12 plus to the following type of energy types of your choice. And I'm just like, I don't know what resist damage 12 plus, like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and then in this card, it has on the side, like, well, this is what resistance is. And this is how resistance works. And they do that for all the races, all the classes. And also there is a status effect deck as well, which if you like to print things, or if you just like to kind of cut out and pick what you want and use it as like an electronic resource. That's what I did. I just screenshotted the ones I use, threw it all together, like a paint document. And I just have all the spells and whatever the crap I need to look at just in front of me instead of all this stuff that's kind of like bogging me down that I'd be like, I don't know what any of these mean. Yeah, this is definitely, resources are definitely really, really helpful for this. I want to go ahead and talk about some of the things about combat that are really like different or special about 13th Age because there is quite a bit that's pretty different than D&D in addition to what we've already talked about. The biggest one and one of the things that I think is actually really cool is the escalation system. So essentially as the fight continues and escalates for each round of combat, you add a bonus to what your players are doing. So you start with a D6 and on their second round you put it on the table facing up at 1. And for each round, you increase it by one. So like the second round of combat, your escalation is one. The third round of combat, your escalation is two, so on and so forth. It advances each round. If the combat stalls, so for example, if your players are like only blocking and not fighting, then it doesn't advance. And if the combat ends, like if the enemies run away or they die, then the die resets to zero. So you just take the die off the table. This is a little hard to do in an audio medium, so I think I'm just going to be like reminding everyone what our escalation is, but that is a modifier to a lot of different abilities and spells that can really like ramp up the like effects of combat. Luckily, most enemies don't get to add escalation dies to their attacks. There are a few that have like special abilities that they can use escalation with. I won't be using these here because that's a lot for first level players. And it seemed to me like the purpose of this escalation die and the purpose of a lot of the rules they have in combat is it seems like they understand that combat in a lot of these games can just take forever and they don't want it to. They really want to get back on track to the role playing part. And so the escalation basically speeds things along. As the battle goes on, you're doing cool stuff, but you're also doing more damage and getting things done more quickly that you can have a cool fight and still finish it up without sitting around the table for three hours. 
Yeah, totally. Um, I know I just spent like 15 minutes shitting on this game, but I actually do really like the escalation dice. I just think it's cool. It's just like, I'm a weeb. I'm a weeaboo, as some of you might know. So I like that kind of anime vibe stuff to it. And it's kind of like very much like an anime fight where like the longer it goes on, the the stakes get higher and, and people like power up more and whatever the hell. I do like that. So there's the plus towards the, uh, in the pros <laughs> column. <laughs> I promise I I am not indiscriminately shitting on this game. <laughs> there's definitely some stuff about it, especially about how it's organized, that I would greatly improve. We'll, like, circle back on that when we're doing our debriefing at the end. When we actually played the game. <laughs> it's difficult to, like, read and start, but yeah, I want to give it a try. After we've been doing this for, like, three years, we'll just have enough information to build the perfect system. Oh my god, we're going to be so powerful. (laughs) Yeah, we definitely should just build our own like beefy system at the end of this. That's the goal of this podcast, is to make Rats and Rocks the ultimate game system. (laughs) (laughs) No, Rats and Rocks is perfect the way it is. (laughs) I'm really excited for that one, but I'm going to stay focused. We're almost done with our discussion here about like my notes. Okay, so some of the other things about 13th Age that are special or different. One of them is that a lot of the like 3.5 type stuff that I really hate has been simplified. (laughs) So like I have made it abundantly clear on this podcast that I hate the grid system. Like you're moving here and you're behind this rock and you're this, you know, you're like this many squares away and it's in this formation. So can the goblin shoot you? Can you shoot the goblin? I hate that stuff. That's just like not my thing at all. And that's a totally valid way to play RPGs, but that's not like what I want to do. If I wanted to play with miniatures, I'd go play Warhammer. I don't want the grid system. So, for example, there's no speed in 13th Age. If it comes up, like if you're chasing someone, the game literally just says use common sense and use flavor. Like if you're a halfling and you're chasing a super tall dude, you better have a good reason why you can catch him. (laughs) Um, Otherwise, you know, common sense dictates that you can't catch him. Positions are also simplified. So it's basically, are you nearby or are you far away? Like even in 5th edition, which is really simplified, even then it's like, you can shoot your bow 30 feet. If you shoot it farther than 30 feet, you take a penalty. And this is like, no, (laughs) everyone is either far away or nearby. There's also this idea of engaged versus unengaged. So engaged basically just means you're fighting someone in close quarters, like in melee range. And then that comes with a bunch of stuff like you can move away, but you're going to draw an opportunity attack unless you use a disengage. If you're unengaged, you can do raged combat, you can move freely, you can intercept enemies that rush past you to attack one of your other party members. But on the whole, positions and speed have been really simplified. It basically is, are you close? Are you far away? Are you engaged? Which has, I think, some real benefits in terms of flow of combat. Uh, You don't have to do a lot of like, is he within 50 feet? It's like, no, if he's far away and you're not engaged, just shoot him. Yeah, and I really like that because when I was anchoring for 5th edition, anytime I had to figure out like for the purposes of a spell or movement or anything, how many feet away is the objective? That was very annoying for me as a GM to have to work out in my head, especially because we weren't using like a grid or anything. And I think simplifying it like this gives you the agency to kind of just do what makes sense and do what is coolest. Yeah. And it's like for a player, there's like no way around it. Like, like we weren't antagonizing you, but it's like when you have speed and you have so many movements you can do and so much speed, you have to figure out how far away things are. And there's really not a way around it. And so like you need to know if the nest is 30 feet away versus 100 feet away. And so we were just constantly making you make up numbers. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you guys will know my opinion on this. We'll see. We'll see what I think about this at the end. I'm not a fan. 
I like having concrete numbers and ideas. And it's all theater of the mind anyway, so it's like, I don't I, I just feel like they, w- they they should just lean one way or the other, and it feels like they're in the middle, and that bothers me. Yeah. <laughs> some people like numbers, and they are valid, and some people do not like numbers, and they are also valid. Uh, I like it on paper. We'll see, like, the eighth time I have to figure out how so far away something is. I'm just going to, like, lay down on the floor. So we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how I do. Some of the other things that I think are really cool is that they have um, some special moves that I haven't seen anywhere else. So, for example, they have Fight in Spirit, which is like if you and your party members are in totally separate areas, you can come up with a story about why you're supporting them. And then you get to actually like add a bonus to their attacks. So, for example, if like most of the party is like fighting a bunch of goblins and one person is in goblin jail, the one person in goblin jail can be like, do you remember the time I sang you a super inspiring team song and you all cheer? and wept because it was so beautiful you remember that in the middle of your combat and so all of you get bonuses to your combat that's a thing you can do that's like a by the textbook example of what fight and spirit looks like there's also coup de gras which lets you auto crit if you choose for your move to only make a standard action against a sleeping or unconscious enemy so you can totally just like sneak up on people and one shot them if they're sleeping and there's also recoveries so instead of having potions or healing spells or things like that you can take recovery as a as an action um, and it'll let you recover a certain amount so basically healing potions versus healing spells versus something called rallying which is basically just like getting your second wind all of those are valid ways to heal and they're all done the same way which i think is kind of interesting we'll see how again we'll see how that goes okay wait i do have a question because i was reading this yesterday on the srd so you can flee i actually think that's very cool because the way they phrase it is fleeing is a party action on any pc's turn any player can propose that all the characters flee in the fight if all players agree they successfully retreat and i like that because it makes me think of like the old school jrpgs where like you hit the you know right shoulder button or whatever to to run away and then your entire party like turns around and they're like a little 8-bit sprite or whatever is like running against the edge of the screen until it works (laughs) So I think that's cute and I like that. But it does say the party suffers a campaign loss. What is a campaign loss? So basically it's it's a flavor thing. So like if your campaign was to like go to the kingdom by climbing the mountains, by fighting the dragon, by bringing the dragon's head to the king. If you like fled from the dragon, you can't bring the dragon's head to the king. You have a setback in your campaign. Oh, so we can't like go back? You can. It just like alters how your campaign is going to go. Like now the dragon is expecting you or something like that. You have a, a flavored negative effect. Okay. I think this book really is more set up for the GM than it is for the player. It feels like there almost needs to be like a separate player's guide because I feel like the main manual is very much like, here's how you shape the universe and here's the decisions that you make versus like, here's how we do this, which is just my reading on it. Like I can't like defend, like there's no like point in the book where they're like, this is for the GM. If you're the player, only read this chapter. And there are a lot of GM tips just like scattered throughout. Yeah, I feel like this is definitely more meant for the GM to make their decisions than some other manuals are. I will also say I do, just to circle it back around to what we were saying before, or what Zeebo was saying before, about Fight and Spirit. I actually do like that a lot, because once again, it does remind me of, like, anime, where, you know, uh, just to go with, like, Naruto, you know, like, you, you have a flashback, and then, like, the very Japanese-style music with the guy going, like, and, you know, that's, like, the hype music, that's just what it makes me think of. <laughs> and that way, if you're somehow prevented from being in the combat, you're not just sitting there watching other people roll dice. Yeah. Yeah, which I think is really, really great. 
on the whole, 13th Age is really meant, I think, for these like long-term playthroughs of really close-knit player groups. This is definitely not the kind of game you would want to play with like that one person in the group who wants to be like the coolest, because the whole point is everyone's the coolest. And it's definitely meant for like long-term, like everyone builds a relationship, your characters build a relationship, the GM has a relationship with you and the universe you've created together. And I think that's actually really cool. Like I think that's like a great way to structure a system. But on the whole, like there's definitely a lot of stuff that seems to specifically be set up for only long-term play. But then again, most games are set up for long-term play. We're in sort of a unique position here where we're doing only short-term play. But if you're interested in something that like you and your friends can like all sit together and like really get into, 13th Age really seems like a good option. I was actually thinking that earlier, but 13th Age, it's just like D&D with people you you like. Um, you know, you can play D&D with people you don't like because luckily the dice will keep them <laughs> under <Humble>. control. <laughs> yeah. So, you know. So now that we've gone ahead and I've like gone through the like long and sundry history of 13th Age and all the little bits and bobs, let's get to the meat. Let's go ahead and talk about our characters. Why don't y'all tell me uh, who I'm going to be anchoring today? Durko, how about you start? It was very easy to like map Zen into the 13th Age system because it is a pretty standard fantasy type system and that was her inspiration in the first place. So she is a draconic. That's kind of one of the tacked on races at the end. There's not like as much racial detail as some of the other races, but that's fine because this world is kind of what we make of it anyway. But so from that race, she did get a bonus to strength. And for class in chapter one, even though I wasn't playing, I had mentioned that I would have chosen Barbarian for Zen. And that was my first instinct here. But the game said that Barbarian was kind of like the most basic class, the easiest class for people who haven't played a lot of other RPGs. And Fighter seemed to be a little more crunchy. And since part of what we're doing is showcasing these games to other people, I decided to go with fighter and I do not regret that. I think the fighter class is actually really cool. In regular 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons, I think sometimes fighter gets a little repetitive. Like every turn you're just kind of like, okay, I attack with my weapon. Fighter is not like that in 13th Age. Like you have your weapon, but you also have a lot of talents and these things called maneuvers, which I guess the best way to describe a maneuver is it's kind of like a spell, but for a fighter. You don't have to decide what maneuver you're using until after you roll. So they're very situational. Like there are some maneuvers that you can use if you missed, or there are some maneuvers that you can use if you rolled an even number or an odd number or above a certain number. So basically when you're making an attack as a fighter, you say, okay, I'm attacking this person with my weapon. And then you roll. And then based on that roll, you can decide situationally how you are now going to attack. So I think that makes things a little more narratively interesting as well. Because you're not just sitting there rolling dice and swinging your weapon. You actually have to make a lot of on-the-fly combat decisions. And I think that's really cool. So for Zen's backgrounds, Fighter gets eight points for backgrounds, most of the classes do. So I gave her five points in the mercenary background and three points in a royalty background because that's kind of who she is as a person, what she's done, and kind of like the time and attention she's spent on each of those backgrounds. So like, even though she was royalty where she's from, she was never like super into that. So that's why she doesn't have as many points in that. And I put more points in the 
mercenary focus. So Canon Zen, base versus Zen. Was she a mercenary too? Yes. Oh, learned something new. Yeah, she kind of like ran off as soon as she could and signed on with a group of sellswords who didn't really know who she was, or maybe they did. She's not sure. Either way. Oh, <laughs> that's fucking sick. This is what y'all listeners come to tea time for. You figure out little bits and pieces of our characters' backstories. Maybe in 12 episodes, we'll get a birthday or something. I don't know. (laughs) So Zen's one unique thing. In her normal form, she's just this big, tall lizard lady. Normally, she's like a bluish sea green type color. In the 13th Age world, she will find out that she is a gold color, which makes her super, super special because there's only one other gold dragon and it is one of these icons. She's not necessarily of any relation, but it does make her stand out. It makes her unique and it might make people assume certain things about her that may or may not be true. So just for a little context for our listeners, the one icon that Dorka is talking about is the great gold worm who's a dragon who has chosen to like seal up all of the demon souls in the abyss so he like stands on the edge of the abyss and keeps demons out of everything which is extremely cool he's one of the like pure good icons yeah and he like basically calls to most of the paladins in this world calls them to his order so for zen's icon relationships i used the rest of this context to mirror her backgrounds and her original origin story so i gave her two points in a conflicted relationship with the gold worm and one point another conflicted relationship relationship with the Prince of Shadows, mirroring her original backstory where she had this destiny she was born into and ran away from it. Things might get a little contentious, this arc. (laughs) (laughs) She might have to deal with some stuff. We'll see. Again, for a little bit more context, the Prince of Shadows is sort of like a mysterious icon. No one really knows what his deal is. Sometimes he's good, sometimes he's evil. He's pretty much not chaotic neutral in like the asshole sense, but he is pretty much chaotic neutral. He kind of just like does what he wants to do. And he's usually associated with like thieves, but not always. So he's like Aladdin's hot dad. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, exactly. He's Aladdin's hot dad. So you have a worm daddy and then you're against Aladdin's hot dad. No, they're both conflicted because conflicted is not antagonistic. It's sort of an ambiguous relationship. Yeah, it's kind of the neutral one. It's like you're recognized by them, but they have a reason to sort of distrust you or they're not sure about you. So the other thing I want to ask you about, we won't go into like the nitty gritty of all that, like feats and stuff you took, but what weapons are you using? Zen is going to be using a great axe. It's a two-handed heavy weapon, which I guess that's important because this isn't a game where every single weapon has its own damage type and attack roll and attack bonus and stuff. It's just attack damage for each weapon is basically decided by the size and whether it's one-handed or two-handed. So functionally, there's no difference between like a great axe and a great sword, but I'm going to go with the great axe because that's cool. That is very cool. Okay, so... So I think then we've covered Zen. So uh, Babby, you want to tell us about Rill? Yes. Okay. So Rill is, as you all know, a tiefling and kind of funny that both the games I played in have been medieval fantasy. So they haven't really had to be like hoarded out of their own skin like Zen had to experience last arc. So I think once Rill has to go through that, they're going to have a bit of a time, but for now they're safe. So in this one, they're going to be a sorcerer. One of the backgrounds for sorcerer was like failed wizard, which I thought was like incredibly 
funny because that's not exactly what Rill is, but it's very similar because they are an academic dropout. I don't remember if I've mentioned this, but they were going to pursue a medical degree because of their parents' pressure slash permissions or whatever, you know? So I thought Sorcerer was really funny. So that they're gonna be one of those magical trust fund babies. Fuck them. Oh, uh, but background, right? Kind of leading into that, like I mentioned, I put academic dropout as one for plus two because, you know, that is kind of a thing for them. Uh, I did some medical knowledge, which is plus three. They were a, I think, a junior or something before they uh, were whisked away into this nonsense. Also, they have culinary background, and I put plus three points in that because their dad and I think their older sister are actually, they own a restaurant together, so Rill grew up in a very cooking-focused type household. Even if they aren't themselves, like, necessary, like, a super great cook or anything, they do know the basics of that and just all the knowledge their family has kind of passed down to them. What this suggests to Zen is that Rill has knife skills. <laughs> they can cut some vegetables. What's, what's like that? Is, is there like a fancy term for when cooks cut vegetables like very finely? <laughs> I think it's just called knife skills. It's just knife skills? Okay. And in their one unique thing, which also parallels their base verse slash OG verse selves, is they come from a family of famed dragon slayers because pretty sure I've mentioned in episode one, they come from sort of a medieval fantasy universe. Not medieval fantasy, but it's it's like D&D, but modern day D&D world. So yeah, it's kind of nice with this, as I mentioned before with the backgrounds, like I didn't have to like angst over the specific list of backgrounds that is given to me in the book. I could just be like, you know what? We're doing this. We're putting college dropout on this list because that, that's who they are. So that's cool that I could do that. And then for icon relations, you get three points, but because of one of my, is it talents? I get talents and feats mixed up. Talents are class-based, and then feats can level up talents, but they don't have to. So everyone gets feats, Okay. and everyone gets talents, but talents are always based on your class. Okay, yeah. So one of my sorcerer talents is Bloodlink. Um, and what that does is it gives me plus one relationship points with an icon that I have a heritage talent with. And one of my heritage talents is the infernal heritage. So I put two points with the Diabolist and I put two points in the Prince of Shadows. And I believe I put, is it ambiguous? Wait, what was it? It was ambiguous or conflicted? I actually got that wrong because I'm looking (laughs) at the chart now. The three types of icons are heroic, ambiguous, and villainous. And the three types of relationships are positive, conflicted, and negative. So it is a conflicted relationship. Yes, it is a conflicted relationship. Okay, I have two points with Diabolist and two points with Prince of Shadows, and those are both going to be conflicted relationships. The reason I picked those was because, you know, here's some backstory, but as I mentioned with Rill's family being like a lineage of like dragon slayers, obviously in like a modern day universe, there isn't necessarily like big bad dragons flying around, so it's more like, this is like your great 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 grandpappy killed a bunch of di- not dinosaurs, <laughs> killed a- <laughs> I mean, maybe, uh, killed a bunch of dragons. And so they kind of have this history with maybe like two specific type of deity type figures. So at first when I was 
coming up with icon relationships. I was trying to figure out like which of those two deities that their family has a relationship with if any of those were transferable over to some of the icons. And I didn't really see anything I super kind of resonated with me. So I picked Prince of Shadows because they're kind of like the fuck you, I'll do what I want type icon. And Rill's not like fuck you, I'll do what I want. Rill's just like I don't know what I want to do but I've like, like I'm vibing I guess. And then Diabolist I picked because Okay, hold on. I'm gonna go on a quick rant here really quick, but like, you know, tieflings are like seen as like the demonic type people because, I mean, I don't know what the lore is for 13th age, but you know, D&D it was like because it's like a, a human and like a demon fucked or made a pact or something like that. And then you made like these little demon people who aren't like necessarily bad, but like they get a bad vibe because one of their parents is like a demon person. We kind of talked about how race is stupid in D&D and medieval fantasy TTRPG type shit. And you know, that's no different here where like tieflings do kind of have like a relationship with the diabolist in the 13th age. Is that correct? Or did I like- It's sort of hinted at. Tieflings are another one of those like optional races that is not not as fleshed out as the main ones like orcs and halflings but yeah it is kind of they like they're kind of looked down upon and sort of assumed to be evil so yeah i mean i think having a conflicted relationship with the diabolist makes a ton of sense yeah and, and so like kind of like the base verse real like tieflings are demon people they're just you know they're just people with like horns and stuff like that but in this universe i was like well maybe it would be kind of interesting to give them this conflicted relationship with the Diabolist. Not because tieflings are necessarily like demon-touched people or that like Rill is a demon-touched person or whatever, but just because maybe their family made a deal with the Diabolist at one point to kill dragons in this universe. And that's kind of where that bloodline comes from versus like tieflings in general being like demon-touched people. We could probably have an entire episode of me just yelling about how, how races are decided in and like written about in <laughs> medieval fantasy stuff and how it's stupid and it would just be me yelling for like 15 minutes maybe maybe wake a patreon and that's like the two dollar tier you just it's just me yelling once a week about something (laughs) (laughs) and then what was it? it was like equipment right that's what you yeah tell me your tell me your weapon uh, so my weapon is going to be a short sword, but I believe in the sorcerer's like little blurb, it was like the magically infused weapon. Not because it's like actually like stat pluses or anything like that. It's just because like sorcerers kind of seem like like street magician shills, and so they do stuff where they like make their weapons or their clothes glow and like look very fantastical and whatever. And because Rill is a dork weeb as am I, their sword probably does have like cool glowing runes or something on it when they like cast magic like like in power rangers or something (laughs) (laughs) just a cool ass sword yeah exactly and i think that's it right no i think that's it unless you all have something that you think is like super sick you want to tell me about no i think that pretty much covers everything okay so now that you all have told me about your characters uh let's go ahead and dive in y'all ready yeah yay okay so it's been a few weeks since you have come back from Sweetgrass. Uh, you're riding high on the success of your last mission. So what have you been doing over the past few weeks in the library? You haven't been sent out on any missions, so what do you use to fill the time? Zen has used the time after her adventures in Sweetgrass. She was a little bit inspired and went straight to Linda. And for the last few weeks, she's been working on perfecting the perfect peach pie recipe. <laughs> That's adorable. (laughs) That is adorable. 
Linda would be totally up for that project. She had a little taste and is worried she'll never taste anything like that again. So (laughs) she must learn to do it herself. Where are they getting peaches from the library? Is there like a cosmic peach tree somewhere? Or do they like open the cabinets and like a bunch spill out? There better not be a cosmic peach tree. Uh, Yeah, that that was kind of the issue, right? Uh, Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) I think both of those, not the cosmic peach tree, but like, you know, you can probably open up some kind of cabinet and the ingredients of whatever you want are there. Or there's, I also like to imagine there's like a greenhouse type area maybe with like those, uh... Like a hydroponics? Yeah, like, you know, how they make putting farms in like cities and stuff like that and it's like oh yeah in a big building with like shelves and it's like monitored and stuff like that and and you know i'm sure there's like trees and stuff i think the short answer is how do you get anything in the library (laughs) yeah that's fair I just love the idea of them like turning a corner and there's like a tree and they're like, oh, let's climb it and get some peaches <laughs> and they get their sticky hands all over the books and someone is mad. It's it's Amazon. Jeff Bezos also has stock in the library, unfortunately. Yet <laughs> <laughs> a nasty gram from Jeff. <laughs> I think Rill has... They've probably been kind of sad still. Still getting used to not being in their home world and so i don't think there's really anything that's going to like make them not miss their family so you know there's just some days where like you just don't see them <laughs> for like a while because they just have not left bed but then other days they seem okay and then probably other days you will have to like handily pick them up and just like throw them over your shoulder that's very easy for zen fortunately yeah yeah <laughs> to make sure Aww. they eat some peach pie for real yeah <laughs> I told you, they're a sad baby. <laughs> I know. And I think Linda is, like, very nice and sympathetic, and Zen's like, get up, nerd, we're doing yoga. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel like Linda would definitely come by and be like, you okay? And, like, bring you chicken soup and stuff like that. And then I think, you know, there are times where they just, if Zen still does her, like, kind of door adventures. Oh, absolutely. Then, yeah, I think Ril would do that as well. They might even, like, late at night when they just want some peace and quiet and solitude they might even just go around to different doors and do that on their own as well luckily they haven't been eaten yet mostly mostly it's like what kind of eldritch horrors they see that maybe are actually fine (laughs) sometimes it's just a bathroom (laughs) there's been lots of bathrooms there's been some eldritch neutrals yeah yeah exactly there's just a bunch of toilet paper for some reason in one of the closets and they're like wow i don't (laughs) I don't know who put all this here or why. That's a stock room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I think I've mentioned, I feel like it was in Session Zero where we talked about how there's probably cats, but, like, just, like, little animals that wander around the library, and they're magical, so they don't pee all over the library books, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> and so they probably play around with those little animals as well. Those are um, what Zen would call late-night snacks. No. No. So I think Linda probably is still slightly recovering from the scariness of their last mission. She's pretty resilient. And so she's probably staying away from spooky stuff. And she's definitely not going on any accompanying missions with Zen to the greenhouse. I feel like she would find some <laughs> uh, some urgent reason. Like, oh, no, I have to go find pie weights for your pie. You go get the peaches. What's a pie weight? Zen is like, sounds fake, but okay. <laughs> no, pie weights are real. As someone who has baked myself, I do know that they are real. What are pie weights? They're like little like clay balls. And you put them in the pie tin when the crust is baking. So it stays flat at the bottom and doesn't like. Oh, that's cute. Oh my god. It is cute. That's so smart. <laughs> 
There's also pie birds that you put in there so like it can like vent the steam and your crust doesn't explode. And I saw a really cute one once that looked like a pork. <laughs> and I'm obsessed. I don't bake pies because I hate pre-baking crust, but I want a pork pie bird very badly. So anyway, <laughs> uh, Linda is probably not super into plants right now. And she's probably like not gonna like go to the mystery or thriller section of the library to like pick up a late night read. She's probably like not sleeping awesome and she's probably trying to like read the equivalent of like a cozy cup of tea. She probably has kept up the book club meetings. She's maybe had one or two since y'all came back and it's a really good chance for her to get to see some new people because the library is a bit nebulous. Those flyers are definitely like drawing a different small set of people every time but Linda loves that kind of shit so she's super into it. But otherwise I think she's just kind of been baking with Zen. Uh, She's been making sure Rilla is okay and bringing you chicken soup and maybe like a toothbrush every now and again to like remind you to practice what she doesn't know is called (laughs) self-care. You know, that's not like really her scene, but she just wants to like take care of Rilla, make sure they're okay and keep Zen company and do fun stuff and try not to think about scary plants. There is one time where Rill comes into the kitchen while you guys are baking and they're just like, uh, I think I found a cat, but it's like, it looks not like a cat, but I think it's a cat. If you turn around to look at them, they have the, this big, fat, fluffy animal that that is shaped kind of like a corgi, and it's very fluffy, but there's six legs, and its face kind of looks more like a wombat with, like, a flat button nose, <laughs> but it has, like, big, flappy corgi ears and then, like, a raccoon tail, and they're just, like, holding it. When it's, like, lengthwise like that, it's just, like, three to four feet long, like, it's kind just like hanging there in front of Rill and they're just like yeah I I found a cat it was sleeping on top of me (laughs) so it sounds like the cat found you I I found it when I opened my eyes Linda would be both very nervous and also fucking delighted so I feel like she would like very gently come over with her hand kind of outstretched and be like can I pet it, Rill? Uh, can I pet your cat? Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, I mean, it's not my cat. It's just a cat that sat on me. <laughs> Linda would immediately reach out, and as soon as she like pet it without it biting her, uh, she would immediately start like ruffling its little cheeks <laughs> and doing the thing you do with cats, where you talk to them in that little voice. <laughs> uh, exactly like me. <laughs> Yeah, she would be super delighted. She'd be fluffing its little cheeks and be like, oh, who's a good girl or boy or <laughs> other type of cat? Oh, who's the sweetest little, uh, what's their name, Rill? Oh, uh, I guess we can ask it. And they would look down at the not cat and be like, hey, uh, what's your name? And it would just kind of like look at Rill and then look at Linda. And it just like kind of has the blank cat blep face, but it's like purring. <laughs> Zen has been focused on like getting her peach mixture perfect and when she looks up and sees them fawning over this cat she's like oh is that dinner what no I mean no no. (laughs) is that you're aren't you making pies pie is dessert Zen, look at this little face. How could you eat this little uncat? Look how sweet he or she or they is. Oh, I've eaten cuter. Oh, no. (laughs) Real just holds it closer. (laughs) Linda looks so offended. Maybe if you give it a name, you won't want to eat it, Zen. What would you name it? I think you should form a connection with it so you feel guilty. Dumpling. About dumpling? Okay. (laughs) I mean... Yeah, dumpling's a good name for a cat. You didn't say that because that's what you wanted to eat for dinner, is it? Zen is just (laughs) silent. (laughs) Just goes back to her peaches. It's okay, dumpling. I won't let Zen eat you. 
maybe we'll put this one on the shelf. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, and then Rill kind of spends time trying to read about what kind of thing animal this is, and like trying to figure out like if they need a litter box <laughs> or or walks. <laughs> it's an eldritch cat, kind of. <laughs> I love it already. Does that mean it's poops are eldritch? Uh, oh, I hope not. Yeah, it's poops are just like condensed antimatter. <laughs> like, what was it, Nibbler from Futurama? <laughs> oh, yeah. So, uh, in addition to all of the peach pie baking and eldritch cat finding and assistance with the eldritch pet finding and peach pie baking, <laughs> uh, you've also been keeping an eye on your journals. After all, the reason you're at the library is, of course, to act as an archivist. So one day, you feel that gentle sensation, that nagging in the back of your brain that makes you think that there's something new in the journals. And lo and behold, you open them one day and you see a new page that says, Retrieve Amulet from the Dragon Empire. What do you do? Rail is asleep on the floor in their nest, and the not cat has picked up their journal in its mouth, and it's just gently like slapping Rail in the face with it. <laughs> <laughs> they don't wake up, so you're gonna have to do something about that. Well, Zen is pumped to get her feet back on the ground. She has her journal on her all the time, just waiting for the next mission. When the the pages flip open and she sees that on there, she is ready to go. She grabs her recent weapon of choice, which is just a huge fuck-off great axe that is probably too heavy for most normal people to lift. And even though historically she hasn't been able to bring things with her or back with her from these places that they've gone on their missions, she just likes to be prepared. She grabs her big fuck-off axe and rushes off to find real in Linda. Is it like on the handle it says in like a runic draconic language like fuck off? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. So when Linda feels her journal nagging for her attention she flips it open and she's a little bit nervous about going back on the ground like she's usually game for it but she hopes there's nothing creepy. So she feels a quiet sense of relief when her journal adds at the bottom, act as anchor. But she realizes that she has uh, some different important tasks. So she goes back to her favorite kitchen nearby uh, her chambers. <laughs> Luckily, she's got one of her big old purses and she starts loading it full of goodies <laughs> and some other secret surprises. And then she goes to find Rill. She's reasonably certain that Zen is already there because Zen's always the first one there. But Rill might need a little waking up. So Linda goes to Rill's chamber. Actually, before you get to their room, you actually see the not cat kind of dragging Rill down the hallway (laughs) (laughs) with like the book sitting on their face. And this poor little thing is is absolutely struggling. (laughs) Then Linda would lean down and give it a little pat on the head and say, oh, dumpling, what a good job. You're such a good not cat. And then I think Linda would probably pick the journal up and try and give Rill a little shake like, Rill, sweetheart. Zen will not give Rill a little shake. (laughs) Zen will give Rill an enthusiastic (laughs) shake. Oh, God. (laughs) There's no sleeping through this. Uh, Rill's just like, God, I'm, I'm up. Did I fall asleep in the hallway? Is this where I fell asleep? Dumpling tried to bring you to the book drop. Knowing what I know about you, that's entirely possible. (laughs) Oh, I guess I can't discount that. That's fair. Uh, Rill's just like, thanks, Dumpy, and just (laughs) pats it on the head. (laughs) (laughs) 
So then I guess Linda would uh, gesture on down to the book drop with you all. Uh, Yeah, I think Rill would follow you guys into the book drop. So as you come to the book drop, you see the towering bookcases that are now becoming routine, even with the imperceptibly dark void between them. Linda finds a shabby and overstuffed chair to perch herself on, and in front of her she pulls a small tea table where she starts unloading the contents of her purse. She soon covers the table in baked goods, as well as a pot of steaming hot tea that she somehow managed to bring down without spilling. And also something that maybe looks like dog biscuits. Looking contentedly <laughs> over the table, she pulls herself up into the chair, puts her journal open on her lap, and starts pouring over it. Uh, she gestures at you all to come up and uh, help yourselves to the, the goodies on the table. Yeah, Zen will have a dog biscuit. <laughs> Rill is carrying Dumpy over, and Dumpy does reach for a teacup and start sipping on it. <laughs> oh my god. So Dumpy is drinking the tea, and Zen is eating the dog treats. Yeah. <laughs> Linda's just gonna roll with this. She's fine. If her friends are happy, and Dumpling is now one of her friends, then she's happy. <laughs> yeah, Dumpy just, like, sips on the tea and just, like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm imagining, like, the baby Yoda picture. Oh, yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I love dumpling already. <laughs> so Linda looks up from her journal and says, Ah, it looks like I have a little extra information. So apparently you're out to find an anomaly. Uh, it's an amulet with a big gem in the center of some kind. It looks like you'll be arriving in a city called Newport. And your contact there is someone named Harold Portsmouth. Uh, and she turns and shows you a picture of just a pretty normal looking human man, salt and pepper hair, little goatee, kind of weary looking. And she also looks around her and says, it doesn't look like I have anything for you. So um, I guess stock up on goodies before you head out. All right. Yeah, okay. What? what I see some cookies, some biscuits. I think somewhere under there, there should be some brownies. Oh, but those have walnuts. Don't eat those real. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'll, I'll avoid the brownies. Do we know what kind of world this is? Well, there's cities. <laughs> That's not... And amulets. <laughs> not really. There's not a ton of information in Look, here. I just want to know how many fingers I can expect to have when I land down there. <laughs> how many fingers does Zen usually have? Four. Oh, okay. I wish I had an answer for you. No, hold on a second. And uh, she picks up the journal and like holds it up over her face and just starts screaming into it. How many fingers should Zen have? (laughs) (laughs) Nothing happens. Okay. So she looks sort of embarrassed, but just kind of says, I'm sorry. I I don't know. Wait, wait, wait. Let me, let me try. And then (laughs) Rill would also grab your journal and yell into his like, uh, will I have a tail? And then I guess nothing would happen. And they'd be like, well, I, I tried. <laughs> All right, well, I guess it's a mystery. Well, you'll find out soon enough, I suppose. I've fingers crossed for four fingers this time. <laughs> and tails. Yeah, I want to keep my tail, please. Yeah, I think Rill would grab a little goodie bag of cookies and... There's probably some tarts. Ooh, yeah. Well, okay, what kind of tarts? Fruit or peak. No, not pecan. Fruit. Okay. All right. <laughs> You're just trying to kill Rail. No, I just really love pecan pie. That's all. No, pecan tarts are pretty good. I think I think seeing the tarts would make Rail excited and just be like, oh, you know, that actually reminds me. My family makes like egg tarts, like egg custard tarts. So I, I maybe I'll try to make some of those for you guys when I get yes, back. Yes, teach me. Teach us how to make them. Please. This is an out of character opinion, but there is no baking that is improved by nuts. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm just going to have a, a mildly controversial opinion every episode. Oh, it's mild to you, maybe. <laughs> Last time it was Buffy. This time it's nuts and baking. Don't do it. Don't put nuts in your cookies. Pecans are good. Honestly, I'm fine with that. I don't like nuts. I do like pecan pie, but... Nope, don't put nuts in your pies either. <laughs> I, I'm i incensed, so... <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Rill has their own little goodie bag of non-nut baked goods, and then Dumpling has on its paws... Uh, or maybe maybe it has, like, not necessarily a collar, but, like, a ribbon tied around its neck. Can it have a little backpack? Oh, Yeah, I think that's valid. Okay, it's gonna have a little backpack, and it's gonna carry its own nut goods in there. Zen's gonna point at Dumpling and be like, is that coming with us? Emergency rations? Well, I don't... Uh, Zen? See, Rill thought that meant as an oh, Dumpy has a backpack. Dumpy's carrying emergency <laughs> rations. Not that Dumpy is the emergency rations. So I think Rill is maybe blissfully unaware of the implications and is just like, mm, sorry, Dumpy. I think it might be a little too dangerous for you. You should stay here with Linda, okay? And then like pat on the head and it just kind of makes a disgruntled cat noise. I don't know. <laughs> 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 Laszlo does that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone make their best disgruntled noise for the for the sound effects. I'll just intersperse them throughout the podcast. Yeah, and then Grill would start heading towards the portal. Linda would do a little a little pity pat on her lap, like, come here, Dumpy. And hopefully Dumpling will choose to hop up after Rill's back and not be too sad. And Zen will fill a bag full of sweets and shove a couple more in her mouth before heading for the portal with Rill. Yeah, Dumpling's doing that thing where, you know how cows sit like dogs sometimes? Yes. Oh, yeah. It's, it's sitting like that. <laughs> Just leggies everywhere. Yeah, leggies. <laughs> all right, well then, are you all stepping into the portal yeah as you step into the portal that familiar breathless feeling comes over you and the inky deepness of the void surrounds you but this time something feels wrong you hear whispers powerful voices that speak to you of destiny and danger and temptation you hear feel a tearing in your mind like a rope has snapped and suddenly you're adrift the familiar presence of your fellow archivist is gone just gone and you land with a thud on the cobblestones When you open your eyes, you're alone. Hey there, my name is Sophie Lessening Redacted. My name is Mara Sunshine. My name is Joe Alias. If you're like us, you love fantasy, sci-fi, and all other forms of fiction. Also, if you're like us, you can't stand that the entirety of those genres get dominated by incredibly boring and interchangeable cis, white, abled, straight, male protagonists. Stories like that just weren't relatable to us. So we started making our own. Come join us at Dungeons and Queers, a podcast where we play tabletop RPGs like D&D and Interstitial, and focus on creating stories with diverse characterization and good representation of marginalized groups. We try to tell serious stories in a lighthearted way, focusing on themes like overcoming loss, finding your true family, and subverting your fascist government at every opportunity. Find Dungeons and Queers wherever you listen to podcasts if you're interested in hearing stories about people like you. The Eternity Archives is hosted, produced, and edited by Dorka, Kite, and Siva. Find us on Twitter at, at @thearchivespod or online at theeternityarchives.com. Our intro music is Paint the Sky by Hans Adam, and sound effects are obtained from zapsplat.com. 
Check out our show notes for more information and some helpful resources. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to the Eternity Archives on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen. Consider supporting us by telling your friends about us, or leave us a tip at our Ko-fi page, ko-fi.com slash the Eternity Archives. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Be gay. Roll dice. An LGBTQIA actual play podcast network.